You're listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagan. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagan. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. Look and it can't be seen. Listen and it can't be heard. Reach and it can't be grasped. Above, it isn't bright. Below, it isn't dark. Seamless, unnameable. It returns to the realm of nothing. Form that includes all forms. Image without an image. Subtle beyond all conception. Approach it and there is no beginning. Follow it, and there is no end. You can't know it, but you can be it. At ease in your own life, just realize where you come from. This is the essence of wisdom. That is from Tao Te Ching. It's an English version translation by Stephen Mitchell. And it is a book that I have had for a long time. Welcome to another episode of the Game on Glio podcast. I was thinking about this writing today as I was putting together the intro for this particular episode. As we head into a new year, the start of 2022, we are all going through different changes. Realizing where we come from gives us the wisdom to figure out where we're going. And isn't that the journey that most of us are currently on? Knowing where I came from, knowing where my journey with Mike was, all that I've learned along the way, that's the essence of wisdom. It's what led to my starting this podcast. It's what's connected me to all of you hearing your stories, connecting with you. Connection. That's what this is all about. All of us finding a way to connect in this very small pool of brain cancer patients, thrivers, caregivers, and grievers. I think about all of the amazing people that I have met along the way. Everybody in this field, everybody doing the work that they are currently doing, And it's what leads to great stories, like our guest today, Dr. Sinai. He is the principal architect of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center's Innovative Phase Zero Clinical Trials Program. When he was younger, Dr. Sinai lost an aunt to brain cancer. More recently, he lost a cousin to glioblastoma. That journey has shaped the work that Dr. Sinai has done for many years 
It's shaped his story. It's the essence of his wisdom. Without those journeys, without those stories, without those pasts, none of us would be doing the work that we do. Foundations wouldn't be started. Doctors wouldn't go into neurology. They wouldn't be studying brain cancer. People wouldn't be looking for cures. We're all motivated by something. We turn that motivation and that wisdom that we have learned into something that can help others. Because isn't that why we're all here on this earth? To take our experiences, our losses, our hurts, and turn them into a positive to help somebody else. And it doesn't have to be done publicly or through media. You don't have to become a doctor. It can be done quietly from the privacy of your own home, your own neighborhood, your own church. But as I think about how we are shaping this conversation, whether in brain cancer or in grief and loss, I think about some of the most amazing and beautiful stories and heroism coming from those of you who are walking this path now, who are putting yourselves out there to share your stories, no matter how hard it may be, to make a difference in somebody else's life and to let others know they're not alone. So as we get ready to talk to Dr. Sinai today, I want you all to remember the journey that he has been on as he shares his story. That journey started to unfold for him at a very young age. That and that alone is what pushed him into the field he has gone into. To start the Ivy Brain Tumor Center, to start the phase zero clinical trials, to get these clinical trials in the hands of patients right now. And his journey was shaped because he has been personally touched by glioblastoma, by brain cancer. And the essence of all that he has gone through has led to the wisdom that he now sees. And it continues to shape the work that he does. I cannot wait for you to hear his story today. It's beautiful. It's touching. And he offers some great insight into the work of Ivy Brain Tumor Center. We will speak to him next after a quick word from our partner. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited dozens of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, Patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Game on Glio podcast. I am joined now by our guest, Dr. Nader Sanai. 
He is the Chief of Neurosurgical Oncology at the Barrow Neurological Institute and the Director of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center. He is internationally recognized as a brain tumor surgeon, devoting all of his time to benign and malignant brain tumors. Dr. Sinai, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shannon, for having me. So I want to jump in. You know, everyone has a different reason for going into the field of neurology and oncology. It is an intense field. It is extremely stressful. There is a lot to do when it comes to diving into this path. For some, it is the simple fact of wanting to work with different brain diseases like Alzheimer's, for example. But for you, it's a much different story. Tell our listeners a little bit about your passion for studying brain cancer and why you got into this field. What ignited this? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when I think about my origin story, it, it starts with my mother's sister who had a glioblastoma in her late 20s and then into her 30s. Mm. And I was a, I was younger then, you know, basically preteen, watching this unfold, not understanding the facts or the science of it, but understanding the impact on the family mm-hmm. and seeing the chaos that it created, the emotional sort of turmoil, how it just unbalanced everybody. And growing up in a close-knit family where everything seemed to flow very harmoniously, for the most part, you could feel the perturbation. Mm. So, so I really viewed it as a very disruptive force, even as a child. And the only thing I saw uh, during those years that seemed to provide any sort of stability to the situation were a small handful of the physicians. And the, the neurosurgeon in particular was someone named Eugene Stern, who was at the time the chair of neurosurgery at UCLA. Mm-hmm. He was a, from what I gathered, kind of an old school neurosurgeon. He was very senior, very well respected, and seemed to be largely feared by those around him. Mm-hmm. But when he was around my my mom's sister, you know, you could see his ability to create that connection and bring a smile to her face and really give everybody a sense of stability and confidence. So you know, I liked seeing that. It made an impact on me. It made me want to be that kind of person for others going through that. And, you know, he was a shepherd taking my mother's sister and our family through these dark canyons. And, you know, without him, I don't know that we would have fared as well as we did. And nobody fares that well in these circumstances, but there are still degrees to it. Right. That's um that's an interesting explanation and you know explaining him as a shepherd guiding them through dark canyons that really paints a picture of what this journey is like for so many. You also had a cousin that ended up developing brain cancer, GBM, correct? Yeah, so then many years passed. I I went to college, I went to medical school, I went to residency, I became a neurosurgical oncologist and you know not too long ago, just a couple of years ago, oh. my cousin developed the same diagnosis, which really was um, another level of terror for the family because they had been through it before. Right. So this time, everyone knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. And I think um, for me personally, 
it was a different kind of shock because this time I was the shepherd and I, I wasn't his treating physician, but naturally his entire kind of care was coordinated by me and, and by my colleagues who I asked to get involved. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it provided for me a little bit of a moment of, of, of self-reflection where I could see that um, I hadn't accomplished yet what I set out to do. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I think when I started down this path, the ultimate objective for me was not just to make it easier for patients to succumb to the disease, mm-hmm. but rather to avoid it entirely. Mm, okay. And um, um, and so, you know, here I am, someone who specializes in this exact thing. This is the work of my life. And, you know, I can't save my cousin. Mm. You know, I think intellectually I understood that that we're not there yet. But emotionally, I think um, it, it basically took me back to when I was a child, you know, with, with Dr. Stern. Right. It reminded me that there's still a long ways to go here, and I need to be part of that solution. So it was a frustrating, of course, a disappointing, heartbreaking kind of experience but it was a very different one in the sense that when I was a child going through it, I was basically a, a passive observer watching this happen to people around me. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an adult, you know, navigating my family through it, I was really trying to, you know, modulate the environment, change the outcome, uh, give him a different ending. And, um, and, and, and it was difficult not to arrive at that. Can I ask, um, first of all, how old he was when he was diagnosed? And two, you said this was just a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. is he still here with us today? No. So he passed uh, within about two years of diagnosis. He was in his late 40s. Okay. He uh, left behind a wife and two mm-hmm. young children. His wife also during the course of that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think this speaks to the importance of the caregiver you know, she she neglected a lot of her own self-care when this happened. And um, she ended up sort of missing a breast cancer diagnosis oh, because she skipped her mammograms and her surveillance and then was towards the end stages of this diagnosed with fairly advanced breast cancer, which she's fortunately had um, good results with. But, you know, it just shows you how fragile everything is. You know, one one minute... They're a a thriving family with incredible life aspirations Mm -hmm. and a broad horizon. And then the next minute, everything goes upside down. Pear-shaped. I know that feeling all too well. And that is a lot for one family to take on. I'm glad to hear that she is doing uh, well and that she is having Mm -hmm. success in her treatment. Um, I am sorry for your losses, it's, uh, my husband was in his mid forties. So, mm-hmm. um, that seems to be unfortunately, uh, a golden age for some reason for this. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious being that you're, you had an aunt and a cousin diagnosed with this. Do you think that there is some type of 
hereditary connection or genetic component uh, based on your experience in the field? I mean, I, I, I've talked to so many individuals where, you know, they, they've had more than one family member diagnosed blood relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just surprises me that, that that type of connection has not been made. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define hereditary. You know, cancers are genetic diseases mm-hmm. and they happen because things go wrong genetically. Um, there's always a background to that and a foreground. So, you know, for some cancers, like certain varieties of breast cancers, uh, with the BRCA mutation, for example, mm-hmm. The, the genetic abnormality is so strongly driving the disease that it is almost a you know one-to-one ratio. With other cancers, I think it's more of a synergy between the two. So do I think that there is some background genetics in our family, for example, that increases the susceptibility to this cancer or others? Yeah, probably. It's okay. not something that I think you could trace from individual to individual, you know, directly. It's not, um, you know, directly Mendelian in terms of some dominant trait that goes down. Um, there are cancers like that or, or families like that. Lee from any syndrome is a P53 mutation, which is a very, very important gene that's mutated in families. And, and, and if that's mutated, every person in that family develops cancer and and brain cancer is one of them. Really? That's actually not a mutation that I've even heard about before. Well, you know, P53 itself is is common in the sense that it exists in many cancers, but to have um, a dominant version of, of the mutation that basically is always passed to your children um, that's a very rare syndrome. And, and the reason in part you haven't heard of that syndrome is that families don't survive it. Yeah. You know, I think cancer is complicated in the purest sense of the word. Do we all have various predispositions to various diseases? We probably do. Mm-hmm. But number one, can we do anything about it? Oftentimes not. And number two, are there still a number of other coincidences that have to happen and, and, and the confluence of it is what leads to the cancer? Yes. So in the case of brain cancer, I'm curious, you know, for, let's say, you know, for example, you have somebody who has no history of cancer in their family, but yet they end up developing GBM. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do we have a better understanding of how individuals that really have no significant driving factor as far as any cancers whatsoever in their family, you know, they're healthy, they're young, they eat fairly well, they exercise, don't have tons of stress going on. Do we have a better understanding as to how those individuals develop? Is it something where it was always apt to develop in a person? Well, the short answer is we don't know. I think the the most accurate way to think about it is that currently it, it, it is kind of like a lightning strike. Mm. It happens. There are a few things about it that we have control over. To, to the best of our knowledge, mm-hmm. with some rare exceptions, there aren't really any environmental factors that drive its development. You know, in survivors of, of Hiroshima and 
Chernobyl, are there increased risks of brain cancer? There are, but those are, it's a different story. But for the average person, it's not, it's not something that you can modulate through environmental risk. What about nutritional risk? There are a lot of people say, you know, oh, sugars, sugars and bad nutrition really drive this. And You know, I, if we're talking about the origin of the cancer, there's certainly no data to suggest that, that, that any sort of dietary or nutritional state is responsible for the origin of the cancer. In terms of the behavior of the cancer, if we're talking about glioblastoma, the most accurate thing we can say is it's still unclear. Okay. There are circumstantial pieces of data that implicate some nutritional states, like, for example, what you mentioned, you know, whether you're more ketotic mm-hmm. with better performances uh, and responses of the tumors. But it, it's clearly not a one-to-one ratio. And so um, the advice I give my patients is, the most important thing is to be healthy and to feel healthy. And that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. If you put one person on a ketogenic diet, for example, they may feel really good and that improves their mental state. And we know all of that only can help your response to any disease, including a glioblastoma, for example. Mm-hmm. But the, another person may have the very opposite response where they feel extremely ill on the same diet. Right, And it's hard to imagine that those patients are equally benefiting. So, you know, we try to just preach common sense. Um, don't let the, um, the panic of, of what you're facing drive you to irrational behavior that you wouldn't normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not a marathon runner, you know, this is not the time to start becoming one. Right. You know, your body wasn't set up for that. You know, I'm curious. There are so many different philosophies that I can kind of hear that are resonating through much of your messaging. You were also, and I I saw this in some of the research I was doing, you had been quoted once as saying that we make sure that this is not just about cutting edge science, but unlocking the latest drug cocktail. And I'm curious if you can explain to our listeners what that means. In the field of science, there are a lot of things that can motivate decisions. And at the end of the day, scientists and clinicians, they're in a career and that career, you know, has constraints, aspirations, successes, and failures. So when you're doing research or or investigating something that's for the public good, for people's health, for example, Mm -hmm. you have to make decisions about what you pursue and how. And then those decisions have consequences in terms of your own personal life. So, for example, in in today's world of science, uh, a lot of one's success is dictated by publications and financial support from from granting agencies. And that's a competitive process. So there are parameters to how you position yourself to be successful in those domains. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to be successful for the right reasons, for the ultimate greater good, but there's practical implications to your choices. So today, for example, if you're a scientist and you've been working on a single concept or a single idea for 10, 20, 30 years, that's, that's something that's really championed in the field because it shows that you've become an expert in that area, that you are committed to it, that you are really 
following through a series of ideas to their logical conclusion. And all of that can, can lead to personal success. But there's another side to that coin, which is that kind of value system prioritizes never giving up, never acknowledging a failure or acknowledging that, in fact, maybe this idea won't work. Maybe this, this direction for a new therapy is actually no longer promising. Interesting. Uh, it disincentivizes that kind of thought process. So, you know, the system itself really enables that kind of philosophy. And there's good things about it. But the, the, the sacrifice there is when something's not promising, turning away from that comes at a personal and professional cost. I have known very few scientists in my career who have pivoted from one direction to another. It's absolutely a rare occurrence. And the ones that I have seen do that have done it with incredible conviction, mm -hmm. but they've certainly been the exception, not the rule. So I think that statement for me really meant that our choices in what we pursue, whether it's you know, at the Ivy Brain Tumor Center here in Phoenix or, or really anywhere in science, they have to be driven by what is most likely to lead to the fastest and best outcome for our patients. So it's almost people in your field need to listen to their gut instinct and really make sure that the focus remains on what could help a patient or help a number of patients in a certain disease population the best. And mm -hmm. it does sound, you know, and I've, I've met doctors myself that are like that. They're very tunnel visioned, so to speak, um, and stay the course no matter what, because they can't think outside the box um, in a manner of speaking. So I, that's very interesting that that's the perspective you come at from that statement, I think um, I'm glad I asked because that is, it's very true. And I think that it, it speaks volumes to the type of work uh, you look to do in working with patients and in the scientific field. You mentioned the Ivy Brain Tumor Center. What got you connected to the Ivy Brain Tumor Center and the Barrow Neurological Institute? Because I know that they're kind of, they're intertwined, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The Ivy Brain Tumor Center is part of the Barrow. The Barrow is a neurological institute in Phoenix that happens to be the, the highest volume brain tumor surgery center in the U.S. So the Ivy Center itself is a research program that focuses on early phase drug development. Okay. It was started in 2018, and it was something I conceived really in response to my professional journey, you know, when I arrived in Phoenix coming out of training from UCSF, um, I was well prepared for my career. I felt like I had trained at the best program in the nation and, and I was ready to really realize what I was aspiring to do, you know, since I was a child when I was watching my mother's sister go through this, which has changed the course of this disease. Mm -hmm. And over the first five or six years, I did everything that I think I was prepared to do. I obviously treated a lot of patients and became very kind of facile with the surgical side of things for brain tumor surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I specialized 
And at the same time, I developed a laboratory that was working on cancer stem cell biology, you know, and I achieved the metrics that I was shown to be metrics of success. Okay. Having NIH funding, publishing in high profile journals, presenting at meetings, et cetera. So I was what we call a surgeon scientist. Right. But after about five or six years, I started to really feel the strain of the clinical outcomes. You know, meeting incredibly brave people like my family and yours mm-hmm. who are struck with this thing, do everything they can. I'm doing everything I can. Our team is doing everything they can. And I still have to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all of my academic efforts are really well-intentioned to change this. But the fact was that the basic science work in my laboratory was not going to change the outcome for these patients today. And so the Ivy Center was born out of a desire to do research in a way where the implications and the consequences are felt as soon as possible. Wow. It's not to say that other types of research aren't valuable. You know, there are there are things we benefit from today that were, you know, the consequences of fairly innocuous observations in in a in a obscure laboratory decades ago. Right. So right. science does have a long-term scale, but when you're talking about someone dealing with glioblastoma for example, those things matter very little. Right. What matters is what can we do right now? Right. And that's what the Ivy Center is is basically built from the ground up to do. It is a center that takes new agents, new drugs that have never been trialed in brain cancer patients and it tries to filter through as many of them as possible get the promising ones into patients quickly, mm-hmm. and then very quickly, within months, make an assessment as to which of these promising agents deserve to be further accelerated and which need to be shut down. So it's very much the mirror image of what I described in terms of the investigational effort that lasts for decades where you're just following a single thread. At the Ivy Center, we follow an entire tapestry. And we're looking to trim all of the threads that are unpromising. You know, we call it fail fast mm-hmm. and, and, and then accelerate anything that looks promising until it either becomes a solution or we again move away from it. That's amazing. It's, uh, it's really touching to hear the passion for which you talk about the urgency to help these patients. And unlike some other cancers, and no cancer is a good cancer, no, no disease in general is a good disease, but glioblastoma is definitely one of those diseases that it just moves quickly, that mm-hmm. you just don't have a lot of time to maneuver and find something that could stick or could work you know, I mean, yes, you have patients that I've spoken to and some that will be guests that are three, seven, you know, maybe 16 years in, but many, many, many are maybe two years most, uh, three years at the most, and things happen very rapidly. So 
it's just so, so touching to hear um, the passion for which the Ivy Brain Tumor Center was conceived and the reasoning behind it. And again, it goes back to that thinking you had from, um, you know, the, the statement you made about how we really need to think outside the box a little bit more and try everything um, to figure yeah. out what could possibly help sooner rather than later because many patients can't wait five, 10 years right. for something to come up that could work. So within this realm, within the hub of the IV Brain Tumor Center, you guys focus a lot on phase zero clinical trials. Can you tell our listeners what exactly does that mean? What does phase zero mean? So for anyone that's dealt with the glioblastoma or any any brain cancer really, uh, you know that very quickly you go from one or two therapies that we know are effective to really out of options. Mm-hmm. In glioblastoma, for example, there are four things total that we know can help. Mm-hmm. One is surgery, one is radiation, one is the drug Temidar, yep. and one is the electric magnetic cap some patients wear uh, called tumor treating fields. Mm-hmm. Outside of those four things, there's really nothing else that's been proven effective. And obviously, none of those four things are curative themselves. Mm-hmm. So what this means is all of our patients, including your family and mine, very quickly run out of options. And when you run out of proven options, your only option at that point is to start experimenting And that really comes in the form most commonly uh, as clinical trials. And a clinical trial, very simply, is a study where we're attempting to test a new drug or new therapy and see whether it's going to be of benefit or not. Mm -hmm. And the conventional schematization for clinical trials, as you probably know, are phase one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Phase one means, okay, we have a drug. We don't know if it's safe. We don't know if there are bad side effects. We don't know if it's effective. So we're just going to start off by figuring out how much of this can we safely give. We're not even going to think about whether it's effective. We just want to make sure we don't hurt someone. Right. So we're just going to give incremental more and more dose to patient after patient until the patients can't tolerate it. And then we know that's the maximum tolerated dose. So that's the purpose of a phase one. A phase two says, okay, now I know that this drug can be safe in this dose. Let's see if there's any reason to even think that it might be effective. So now we're going to give this dose to a group of patients, and we're just going to see how they do. And and maybe if they look like they're doing a lot better than average, then that means there's some promise here. Okay. And then phase three says, well, I just did the phase two. I gave it to a 50 patients and yeah, you know, they seem to do better than average. I can't compare them to anyone because there was no group that didn't get the drug. So now I'm going to do a randomized study where I'll take a hundred or a thousand patients and half of them will get the drug, half of them will not. It'll be randomly assigned. And then we'll really know how people compare with or without the drug. Mm -hmm. So what I just described is somewhere between 10 and 20 years of work, Yeah, you know, somewhere between, you know, a half a billion to a billion dollars of total investment. I just described someone's career, basically. Right. And you and I know that for 
decades, this kind of strategy has been pursued, but yet we only have these four things that I just mentioned to show for it. Mm-hmm. So the idea is we need to have a little bit of a better way of figuring out what to pursue. Phase zero trials basically reduce the questions down to something far more specific. If I give a new drug to a patient, there are probably two reasons why the drug might not work. One is the drug is not getting to the patient's tumor because brain tumors are in your brain and your brain has something called the blood-brain barrier, which is a protective lining that's designed to keep things out. Right. That's good for you, except when you need to get things in to treat (laughs) a disease. Right. So one reason is the drug doesn't get there. And that's by far the most common reason why drugs fail. The second reason is the drug gets there, but whatever you think the drug's doing or supposed to do, it's not actually doing it. Now, these are very obvious reasons. And you would say, well, naturally, those are two things you have to look at. But nothing in in what I just described in phase one, two, or three looks at either of those things. Interesting. In fact, All you do in those studies is you look at, one, the patient's side effects, like did I make the patient really sick or not, and two, the patient's MRIs and how long they lived. But just like you pointed out earlier, patients with glioblastoma, there's a lot of variability in how they do and what they do. So if you take 30 patients and you give them tomato juice, I guarantee you some of them are going to do better than average. Right. But, you know, is it because of the tomato juice? You don't know that. Right. There's no direct connection. So in a phase zero trial, we say, look, these patients don't have time to be taking our word for it in terms of what trial to go on, you know, based on our educated guess, which historically has been wrong. And then spending months, if not a year or more on an experimental therapy that maybe was never going to work in the first place. Right. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give them a little bit of the drug before surgery so that when they go to surgery and this tumor is removed, we can test these things directly. We can say, did the drug get there? Yes or no. And is it doing what it's supposed to be doing to this patient's tumor? Mm -hmm. Not some other patient's tumor, this patient's tumor. Yes or no. So you're inserting a phase zero clinical drug So basically, a patient would have to have some understanding before they even do surgery upon like an initial diagnosis or um, a a recurrence, for example, Mm -hmm. that I have to have another brain surgery or I'm going to have to have brain surgery. They have to be aware that this is available to them so that they can be then connected to you guys so that you guys can then say, okay, you're going to get this drug before you even do surgery. That's right. And as you know, surgery is not uncommon for right. these tumors, right? Because it's one of the few things that has a benefit. Right. So surgeries happen all the time. And if you have a, a center, if you have a system in place where this kind of opportunity is not some exotic, fanciful, you know, um, remote avenue, but mm-hmm. it is rather just baked into the management of the patients, then you have an opportunity to really test a lot of different options in patients in a short period of time. Wow. So at the Ivy Center, 
this is woven into everything. Right. When a patient comes to our center and they don't even know they have a glioma, they have they have a seizure, you know how it often happens. Yep. You're doing fine, everything looks good, no reason to be concerned. Then the next day you have a seizure and you're in the, in the emergency room. Right. And the day after that, you're having a conversation with someone like me explaining that there's a mass there, we don't know what it is, but we need to get it out. It's the cause of your symptoms. And, you know, that's when all the chaos begins, as you and I both know. Yeah. So what we say in those circumstances is, look, there's a mass there and we don't know what it is. However, if it is one of these things that we're worried about, we know that the treatment options for you after surgery are going to be limited. Mm-hmm. And we want an insurance policy against that. We want to stay ahead of that. So... Here's an option where you can get exposed, take a few days or even one day of an experimental drug. It's not enough to cause you side effects. It's not enough to cause any long-term problems, Mm -hmm. but it is just enough so that if you happen to have this diagnosis, we're going to have more than the usual options for you. So that's how we present it. And, you know, patients are obviously having their lives turned upside down at that moment. Mm -hmm. But just like other physicians have done for my family, if you walk them through it slowly, if you show them that you're there with them shoulder to shoulder, that this is, this is, yeah, this is a scary moment. It's your first time going through it. It's not mine. They use that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so we have clinical trials for newly diagnosed patients. And like you mentioned, for recurrent patients that are all going to surgery And we use that opportunity to test a new drug on them. And if that drug looks like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, only then do they get the drug long-term. And in that circumstance, they have a lot more certainty that there's an opportunity for success than when you're just kind of taking it on faith. Right. And longevity. Uh, And longevity. Yeah, which is really... Which is the point. Exactly. Even if there isn't a cure, you know, I say it over and over again, if we could just make this more of a chronic condition where it's something you just kind of deal with and live with and know that there are some treatments that will maintain it, keep it at bay, have it go into remission, so to speak, or have no evidence and you're able to live life, mm-hmm. have a family, pursue your dreams, mm-hmm. be fairly healthy, neurologically don't have a ton of disruptions as you go along. That's so rewarding in and of itself, you know, to be able to tell patients, you know, hey, you you may have 10 years, you may have 15, you could have 20, you know, if this responds the way we want it to. Right. You may have to live with it, but how many things out there are there that so many people have to live with, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and <laughs> diabetes and... And other cancers. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe it goes into remission for a few years, maybe it pops back six years down the road, but hey, if it gives you that that longevity and that hope and that chance. That's what this is all about. Right. So you've got a number of clinical trials currently uh, for both newly diagnosed and recurrent patients. Are you accepting patients into any of these trials at this time? Or is it something like, you know, is it something where they just come in, they have to meet with you, and then, you know, this is, they're having surgery? Or is there a different process that's involved with getting them connected to the trial? Well, our patients come from all different kind of points along that road. 
Okay. So we have patients that are local. They've been with us since the beginning. And then about half of our patients are out of state. They're coming to us because they've been through the initial rounds of treatment somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They're now at that point where they get the sense that they're running out of options. Mm-hmm. And we are here to provide new options. You know, our mantra is we're not going to test something that's being tested somewhere else because there are too many things out there that need to be tested. There's no room for duplication of efforts. This field is not large enough for that. You know, this is not breast cancer or prostate cancer or lung cancer where there are so many patients, unfortunately, nationally and worldwide Mm -hmm. that you can cover all your bases very quickly with Mm -hmm. brain cancer. There's far fewer opportunities. So, uh, yeah, so our patients engage with us at various points and, you know, our approach is the same for each of them. What do we have in our portfolio today that is individualized for what you have? Because everyone's tumor is a little different. You know, you were asking about genetic predisposition. Right. Well, all of our genetics are different. And as a consequence, especially with things like glioblastoma, one patient may have a glioblastoma, another patient has a glioblastoma. Those are not the same tumors. Exactly. So the solutions have to be tailored. And that's something that I can't stress enough to anybody who's listening. It it is so individualized um, for so many different reasons, not only because of how the brain is structured, for each individual. Every individual is different with how they're born, the genetics and the makeup of their brains, uh, the location of a GBM, how it behaves, how it responds, uh, how big or how small it is. There's just so many different varying factors. Um, No two people are alike, even if you're in the same family. So that is extremely important. You also touched on the fact that unlike uh, breast cancer, lung cancer, um, unfortunately, there aren't as many individuals to work with and cycle through, um, which I guess in a way is a good thing, but it's also a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. I did notice though that seven, eight, 10 years ago, we were looking at maybe 15,000 cases uh, nationally. Now it seems to be creeping up closer to 25 and globally over 300,000 cases. And I'm wondering is that the trend? Are we seeing a little bit more of an uptick because it's just we're starting to take more notice of it? Or um, do we know if there is a pattern for the uptick? Or is this about the same um, number-wise, you know, that it kind of hovers between 15 and 25? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You know, we think it's probably driven by a variety of variables, but some of them sort of makes sense. So, you know, number one, we're living longer. And this is a disease that can strike when you're young or you're old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the longer lifespan will lead to a higher number of cases being detected. Number two, we're much more aggressive about scanning people's brains. You know, today, if you bonk your head and come into the ER, you're absolutely getting a scan. 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. Right. Interesting. And today you might get an MRI. Right. 10 years ago, it might have just been a CT. So people are discovering these things uh, with more sensitive tests. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the definitions of these diseases have shifted over time because, 
years ago, 20, 30 years ago, these diseases were diagnosed, you know, really under a microscope. You would get some tissue, you would look at it on a slide, and on the basis of what you saw on the slide, that would tell you, okay, this is a glioblastoma or this is something else. Mm-hmm. But today, those definitions are not based on what you see with your eyes. They're based on the computer readout of a genetic analysis. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the vocabulary has changed. Um, and, and in doing that, it's changed the the way we define the disease. And so as a consequence, those numbers have shifted a bit. So it's a combination of all those things. Is there some, you know, worldwide or national force that's increasing the actual incidence of glioblastoma, for example? Not that we know of. Obviously, what people worry the most about are things technologically related, like, (laughs) um, you know, cell phones, um, power, right, exactly, all of that. And to the extent that we've tried to ask those questions, there hasn't been any smoking gun evidence. Okay. You know, it's hard to disprove it, Mm -hmm. so you still have to use your judgment, but at least we know that when we've taken our initial efforts at looking over several thousand patients at, for example, is the relationship between a cell phone and formation of a glioma, the answer has been no in the study. Okay. That's interesting. And I'm sure something that will have many listeners perking up because that has been a hot button topic when it comes to this discussion over and over and over again. Briefly, could you just explain to our listeners just a little bit about what cyanodynamic therapy is? Sure. So this is one of our phase zero clinical trials. It's what's called the first in human trial, which means that just like it sounds, first time a human being has received it. Mm-hmm. Um, sonodynamic therapy is, is a term that refers to a strategy that involves a drug and a device. The drug is called 5-ALA or 5-aminolevulinic acid. It is an amino acid derivative, and the trade name for the drug in development is called Sonala001. And basically, this is a drug that is fairly well understood. And it's interesting because it has special fluorescent properties. When you give this drug to a patient with a glioblastoma, their body metabolizes the drug and breaks it down into normal byproducts Mm -hmm. that are harmless, except the tumor cells in the body, specifically like a glioblastoma cell, has difficulty breaking it down because these cells are abnormal. And so they're metabolic pathways are also abnormal. So instead of breaking down the drug, it kind of gets stuck at one of the intermediaries of the breakdown process. And that intermediary is like a different type of molecule that accumulates in the tumor cell. And it has a strange property that makes it fluorescent. So if you shine a blue light onto a cell with that byproduct in it, it glows back as red. And so this has been used in the operating room for many years as a way of seeing the tumor as a neurosurgeon so that you can get more of it out. Mm -hmm. You give the drug to patients in the morning, and then several hours later, you do the operation. And if you shine the blue light in the operating room, you see the red tumor. Now, one of the other things that's been known about this same drug is that if you were to shine that blue light onto the tumor long enough, the tumor cell would actually die. Really? 
And in fact, this same drug works for other types of cancers. So for example, if you have a basal cell carcinoma, which mm-hmm. is you know a, a cancer but fairly manageable, uh, the most common treatment for that is surgery. You just cut it out and it's cured. But another way you can treat it is by giving them this drug and then bringing them back every day to shine that blue light onto it. And what happens is as that drug is fluorescing, it kind of precipitates a chemical reaction during the fluorescence process Mm -hmm. that is toxic to the cell. So it will kill the basal cell carcinoma and it'll disappear if you expose it enough. Now, brain tumors, you can't go in there and shine a blue light on them forever. Uh, So that strategy doesn't really have any application. But somebody clever figured out that there's another way to activate this drug, and it's not with light, it's with ultrasound energy. And so if you take ultrasound energy, you know, harmless ultrasound energy, like the type of energy you would use in a cardiac echocardiogram or an ultrasound for a baby, Mm -hmm. that level of energy, if you tune it properly and point it at the tumor that has that drug in it, it will precipitate the same chemical reaction and kill the tumor cell that way. So this is the drug device combination. It is MR-guided ultrasound, which is used to target the tumor that has received the 5-ALA. And that's what leads to what's called sonodynamic therapy. So we saw this data. We um, became familiar with the companies involved with it. And, you know, at the Ivy Center... We have several kind of basic principles. Number one, we pay for all of our clinical trials ourselves, Mm -hmm. which means the patients don't pay for it, but maybe as importantly, the companies don't pay for it. And we do that so that we can be completely unconflicted. Right. Number two, what we ask of the companies is for them to give us their drug for free. And what we give them back in return is all of the intellectual property and rights to the data from our studies. Okay. And we do that also for the same reason. Number one, we're not interested in monetizing this. Mm-hmm. We think that it's important to encourage the industry to be successful. And so we're trying to help them become successful. So we became uh, familiar with these companies and we did our, our homework like we do on any new drug product. And when we did our homework, we realized, you know, there's really no reason why this shouldn't work. And whenever we reach that conclusion, the next step is to put it to the test. So we started this first in human trial. We just treated our eighth patient yesterday. With the sonodynamic therapy. With the sonodynamic therapy. What are you you currently seeing based on the patients you have treated? What we see is that number one, so far is totally non-toxic and safe. Okay. Number two, Wherever we target tumor cells, we get tumor cell death. Wow. And number three, it seems to be happening through exactly that mechanism that was hypothesized, that was suggested. Okay. Which is there's this kind of chain reaction that occurs when that ultrasound energy hits that molecule. That is absolutely fascinating. I can actually picture it happening in my head Mm -hmm. as you're describing it. And I don't know, because a lot of people know of 5-ALA, a lot of surgeons are using it um, during surgeries, but to combine this with that therapy and use an ultrasound, that is just absolutely fascinating 
technology to me. And again, thinking outside the box, trying to find another way to get at this quicker. Exactly. And it just impresses me. So I'm curious, you know, as we're talking about all of these things, the intensity for which and the veracity for which, you know, you really go at this is extremely compelling. It's extremely moving. It makes me so grateful that we have um, neuro-oncologists like you um, and surgeons like you out there in the field working on this. But I have to wonder, how do you stay balanced with all of this going on? You know, what, what is it that you do to de-stress and unplug so that you can be the best that you can be when you walk through that door every day? Yeah, yeah. Burnout is a real thing for sure. Yeah. And, and you can see it in the eyes of my colleagues every day. The first thing I learned as I was going through my career was I have to make sure I'm doing things for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. So early on in my career, I was doing things in a way that I was trained to do them, but it was making it difficult to have hope because if I'm treating these patients every day, doing everything I can surgically and otherwise to help them, they're still passing away. Meanwhile, all of my other energies are going into a laboratory project that yeah. you know, has significance in the broad sense, mm -hmm. but it's not helping Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, who I just saw on Thursday. Right. The first thing I realized is I need to align those efforts. If I'm going to pour you know, all of my energy into this, it's got to go into the right channels, and it's got to lead to things where I don't know what the results are going to be for my patients. I think that's that's really the, the definition of hope mm -hmm. is you know you have this disease, you know how other people have ended with this disease, mm -hmm. but if you don't know what's going to happen to you, that little delta between those two realities, that's the hope. Big difference, big difference. It's a big difference, and it's the same thing for for clinicians, yeah. we know that this is a difficult disease. And for many, many patients, we know how it's going to end. Mm -hmm. But when you are working in the space, for example, the way we're doing here at the Ivy Center, and you have a trial, for example, like the sonodynamic therapy trial you just mentioned, yeah. we don't know what the, what the ceiling of that effort is. Mm -hmm. We don't know, you know what patient eight, who we just treated on Monday, uh, is going to be like that uncertainty. That's the hope. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So professionally, that's what you know enables me to keep going without losing any any speed. Mm -hmm. Personally, it's really about it's really about balance and doing things that you know really take you out of that moment into the next moment. So obviously. Um, I have a family, I have a seven-year-old, um, and making sure that I have time to really live through those mo those fleeting moments mm -hmm. and, and savor them. And, you know, I, I've heard this from many of my colleagues, the pandemic actually helped that because we were yeah, home yeah. so much more than before. Yeah, That's part of it. The other part of it is having other interests. You know, I, I play tennis and I surf. And those two things are activities where when I'm doing it, mm -hmm. there's absolutely not another thought passing through my head. 
you're able to shut your brain off. You're able to shut your brain up, focus on the moment. And that is such a respite um, from the fast paced kind of world we live in. So, you know, you're the first one I've spoken to that mentioned surfing. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's, I've heard some different hobbies and things that people do. You're the first one to bring up surfing. And I'm a bit jealous, I have to say, because we don't live in an area where we are allowed to surf. So, well, I mean, we live in Phoenix, so yeah. there's no surfing here, but we're not a far drive from Del Mar exactly. and San Diego. Yeah, I think there are certain sports and personal hobbies where you're just, so dialed in and you can't possibly be multitasking in your head. You know, it's interesting that you say that. For me, after Mike passed away, after he died, um, the one thing I did was actually connect to rowing. And Mm -hmm. uh, we have a fairly competitive rowing club out here uh, where I live. And I got involved with the team and started Mm -hmm. getting out on the water and being part of that world. And the first thing that I noticed when I got out on the water was that I couldn't think of anything else. Right. You're just focused on the motion of the rowing, the oars, where your hand placement is, your breathing. Right. And all you're focused on is being in sync with the rest of your team in the boat, uh, in the shell. So I absolutely agree. Um, There's just something very cathartic and very healing um, about doing something like that that allows you to just be in that moment. So important. Yeah. And then obviously the physicality of it. Exactly. Yep. I mean, so many of us are just, even as a neurosurgeon, you're basically motionless in the operating room in large part for many, many hours. That's true. Yeah. You know, being out there and, and just the physicality of it, it, it really changes your whole body chemistry. Before we wrap, I want to know, and I would love to just uh, have you give us one thing that you cherish in life and one thing that you cherish in your career. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in life, it, it, it's obviously my seven-year-old daughter. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just um, amazing to watch childhood. And it takes you back to yours, but at the same time, you're watching, you know, this perfect little being going through it. And these little moments are just indelible and, and, and so just so honest. Mm -hmm. I love that. So for, for me, I mean, she's only seven, but I've been there every step of the way. It goes so fast, but at the same time, it's like a privilege to be there. That's sort of how I feel. That's nice. It's just something I'm so grateful for. Um, And what I cherish in my career. Honestly, I'm just grateful to the patients. It's funny because when you're in my shoes, a lot of patients will thank you for what you've done. And I always feel embarrassed when they do that because uh, usually they're telling me that after, you know, my, their loved one has passed away. Right. Um, and um, it, it just, it, it hurts to hear it. I appreciate it. But mm-hmm. I feel, um, I feel a little bit undeserving of it. Mm. But I'm grateful to them, actually, that they let me be part of it. That's that's really the reciprocal feeling I have. I I 
I feel like it was a privilege to fight the fight with them. Right. And um, and and so that's this cycle that that I go through, and that many people in my profession go through professionally every day. So I never take that for granted. I mean, you know. You mentioned the surgeon standing there for hours on end, operating on the patient. Yes, that's difficult. Yes, you need to be trained for that. But who's really doing the hard work there? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Me or the man or woman whose brain is exposed and it's putting whose their life, life in your is, hands. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so that is a privilege. That is something that I cherish. And you know, one day, and it will be in our lifetime. Uh, that cycle will break, and we will get ahead of this thing. And I, I don't have any doubt about it. You know, if, if there's anything that the pandemic, you know, should have reminded the world, and I remember thinking this from the moment it started, it is that science will prevail. Like our ingenuity and creativity will find a solution. And you see that today with other cancers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're diagnosed with melanoma today, you have a completely different outlook right. than if you were diagnosed even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So this can happen for us too. It, it will just take more time, but we will get there. Uh, that is a beautiful sentiment. And I agree with it completely. And And I know we will too. And I look forward to the day when we do. Um, and I think that that is just such a great, hopeful way to end our interview today. I am so grateful for the time that you gave us and for all of this information. It is so invaluable to have people like you being able to speak directly to our listeners and to really guide and show them what it means to walk this field and, and be on this journey if people out there are curious about the work that you're doing or they want to learn more about the IV Brain Tumor Center and the clinical trials that are going on or if they are uh, able to get involved or if they be- can become a patient of yours, where would they go? How would they connect with uh, the IV Brain Tumor Center? Yeah, they can find all of those avenues on the website, ivbraintumorcenter.org. Okay. And whether it's, you know... Um, aspiring physicians or existing scientists and investigators we we have a need for for them as we are growing rapidly if it's patients or families of patients who want to explore additional options just want a separate perspective mm-hmm. you know we we are we are here for you and if it's anyone that just wants to support the cause because Unlike other cancers, this isn't one where you can have an army of survivors marching on Washington. Right. You know, right. this is one where it, the disease is ruthless enough that it doesn't leave enough of a trace for there to be a real footprint for advocacy the way other cancers have benefited. So, Well, that's why this podcast is here. <laughs> absolutely. And your podcast stands apart, I would say. Oh, in terms you. of the, its eloquence, but also, you know, the depth in which you go, I, I, I'm, I, I've never seen anything like it. So congratulations. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's so, that's so kind. Thank you very much. I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you for joining us and being here. To all of our listeners, we will be right back.
I want to thank our guest again today, Dr. Nader Sinai, for joining us on what has been such an insightful and powerful episode. I was thinking back again to some of the things that he said, and there were a few things that really jumped out at me. He said, we don't know what the ceiling of our effort is. That goes so eloquently with what I said in the intro. You can't know it, but you can be it. Just realize where you come from. This is the essence of wisdom. You can't know it, but you can be it. The doctors don't know what the ceiling of their effort is in this fight against brain cancer. None of us know. We don't know what it is, but we can be it. We can be the essence of wisdom. It is so powerful to hear the words of Dr. Sinai the work that he is putting forward to do everything he can to get clinical trials and to get some type of medicine or experiment into the hands of patients, into the care of caregivers, to give them something, to give us all hope. Because just like he said, patient A and patient B could both have glioblastoma, but they're two different patients. So you don't know how each patient is going to respond And that's the Delta, right? Just like he said, that's where the hope comes in. No matter where you are in your journey or your fight, I want you to remember these words. I want you to to let this sit with you. Meditate on it, breathe on it, be still in the moment of it. Take it in because we're all on this really crazy journey together. And I can tell you for me, I could never have imagined being here right now in this moment. I never would have imagined becoming a podcaster, doing the work that I am currently doing, being an advocate and a public speaker in the area of grief and loss, in the area of brain cancer. But I am so grateful that I am here. I'm not grateful for how I got here, and it is still a a journey I am walking through, And I am sharing that journey with all of you, but I am so grateful that I have been able to take my gifts and my talents and find a purpose and a use. Even though I don't know what it is that I'm going towards, I can still be it, whatever that is. I can embrace it and just walk this path because that is the essence of wisdom. It is the essence of hope. It is the essence of life itself. So to all of you, thank you for being on this journey with me and allowing me to be on this journey with you. We will continue to do that. And as we get closer to the end of season one, I am so grateful and so excited that we are gearing up already for season two and already have some amazing guests lined up. So until our next episode in February, thank you so much for joining us. Please definitely stay tuned because we have a big episode in February. It is an amazing, beautiful episode with world-renowned author and for whom a Lifetime movie has just been made of, Christine Carlson, the wife of the late Dr. Richard Carlson and the authors of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. We do video, we do audio, we have some great outtakes. You don't want to miss next month's episode. So until then, thank you all for joining me. We'll see you next time.
Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameonglio.podcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio Podcast.